0: You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into a zone where high school students want to go to a class, Hey everybody, I'm Steve Green with Bill Whittle and Scott Ott, and this is Right Angle, brought to you by the members of BillWhittle.com. Uh, gentlemen, this is just one of my favorite stories, and and I can't tell you how long. There is uh, one of those STEM magnet schools in New York City, it's the Stuyvesant uh, High School, that has a new class that has a waiting list to get in. And this is the part that blew my mind. Kids... If there is an empty seat or empty room on the floor, kids who are not enrolled in this class will will go in there and sit down on the floor if they have to, just to listen and learn stuff. It's crazy, right? Well, the, the class turns out to be the, uh, the brainchild of a uh, math teacher there. Let me see if I can get his, uh, his name here. Uh, David Peng. So he teaches math. P-D-Peng? Peng? Peng. P E N G. Thanks. Yes. He uh, he saw an editorial in the school paper written by uh, Anisha Singhal who asked calculus before checkbooks because this is a STEM school and these kids are getting all these AP calculus and AP this and that classes but they weren't getting any real world lessons and things like how to balance a checkbook. And so uh, this math teacher started this. It was just supposed to be a one-semester-long class in personal finance, where they learn things about how to file a tax return, uh, how mortgages work, just really basic stuff like balancing your checkbook. And the class has become so overwhelmingly popular. There's a wait list. Instead of one semester, it now lasts uh, all year long. And uh, the kid who wrote the editorial actually ended up on the wait list to get into this into this class. Uh, <laughs> And it got me to thinking, there are, uh, I have a high school student, I've, I've got a junior in high school right now, and as smart and as sharp as he is, uh, high school is just not his thing, because it's true, so much of high school is BS. So uh, Bill, let me put the question to you. If you were to design just, just one class that would get high school kids interested in learning and, and hopefully make that, that learning infectious, what would it be?
1: Submitted for your approval, one Mr. Peng, who's about to begin his return from oddness and obsolescence. Uh, the, um, the reason that people are going to this uh, class in record numbers, I think, is twofold. Uh, first of all, unlike virtually everything else that you find in schools today, this is actually useful information. Yes. And I think people begin to realize it's youthful, useful information. And secondly, it sounds like it is not infused with woke Um, I'm not saying that students are going there to escape, woke. it'd be nice to think that, I don't know how much of that is true. But I think the class is popular because when kids are there, I think they feel like their time is being spent learning something rather than being lectured to and told how to think about things. And you can't have a society uh, that can't, you can't have a society that can't balance a, a, you know, a a $4 billion budget, unless you have citizens who can balance their checkbook. Uh, this, this reminds me of a show that Steve did, uh, Scott, I think, brought several um, uh, several months, maybe years ago. Was that YouTube guy Scott? Uh, hey, Dad, how do I or whatever? Oh, the, yeah. The oh
0: yeah, yeah, that was a great one.
1: So this guy had started a a, a, a a very successful YouTube channel, and it was like, Hey, Dad, how do I change a tire? Hey, Dad, how do I tie a tie? These fundamental skills are not being taught anywhere, and I find it an incredibly encouraging sign. Genuinely, genuinely encouraging sign to find out that, that when you teach kids stuff, uh, they, they actually are, are, are lining up to, um, to learn it. So in direct answer to your question, I would teach a history class. And I would try to teach a history class the same way I do the history series that I do for Daily Wire. I would try to find the human story, the individual human story, that is set in the middle of this whole thing and start from there, you know? If I was doing the Cuban Missile Crisis, I would start on the submarine with a nuclear torpedo that's being, uh, you know, test-depth charged and, and they're getting ready to fire this nuclear torpedo and there's a, essentially a nearly a, a gun battle on board the sub whether or not to launch this nuclear torpedo that's gonna start World War III. I would start with that and work my way backwards. Um, history is, is, is notorious for being Taught as a litany of dates, and and rote understanding of dates is important. That y- you cannot go without rote learning. Exclusively rote learning is is miserable. But if you don't know the difference between 1965 and 1865, you're going to have a problem <laughs> when it comes to history. But but this is the thing that that I think is becoming clearer and clearer to me. Certainly with the three existing series and the fourth one that I just finished, and that is that for me, the key to success in the comments have been awfully good, is to find the human story that you can connect people to what was going on at the time. And once you can get them involved on a personal human basis, then the world around them suddenly becomes, you know, really quite important. And you hear these, these cases of people, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I got into history because of Ken Burns' Civil War series. That's a great series. I, I th- that that's it. And and I had no interest in watching it. I just had a bunch of friends who was watching or who were watching. Thought, oh, god. Oh, I'm going to come over and watch this new uh, documentary. I'll come over for half an hour, watch the first part of the first half hour. And in the first in the first lines out of the first episode of Ken Burns series, is he talks about Wilbur McLean, who owned a farm in um in uh, Manassas, Virginia, uh, owned a, a little house in Manassas, Virginia, and next thing you know, there are cannonballs flying through his living room, and he he is living on the battlefield of the first battlefield of the Civil War. So he decides, I got to get the hell out of Manassas. So he picks up and moves and buys himself a a, a significantly nicer looking brick structure. Um. Uh. In um I'm for the love of God.
0: Appomattox. Was it another battlefield?
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you. at Appomattox. Oh and wow. and that is where they signed that's where Lee went to sign the surrender with Grant. That in itself is amazing. Yeah. but then that great narrator, whose name has also escaped me because the brain cells are dying off in record numbers here uh, but but then the narrator says so it it could legitimately be said that the civil war began in Wilbur McLean's living room, mm. and it ended in his parlor. Wow. And I thought, that is unbelievable, unbelievable. And and throughout that series, you would keep hearing these true stories, you know, of things. I, I was just talking to some friends on uh, when I was away for the last couple of days, and it just flew into my head. We were in Tennessee, and I said, we crossed into Tennessee on the road, and I said, you know, the Tennesseans always had a reputation for being kind of like the sarcastic kind of smart aleck guys. And and I'm just recounting this one story. It was one battle where where it was just a major bloodbath, and the Tennessee regiment had got in there and gotten completely mauled, came back down. They're all lying on the ground. They're bleeding. They've taken a real beating. And as they're lying on the ground, this Texas regiment goes in, and one of these Texans stands up, and he's looking around at all these Tennesseans. They're on the same side, obviously, on the Confederacy. And he says, Rise up, Tennesseans, and watch the Texans go in. So the Texans go in and there's a lot of cannon fire, a lot of musketry fire. Ten minutes later, what's left of the Texans come limping out of there. And one of the guys from Tennessee says, rise up, Tennesseans, and watch the Texans come out. And <laughs> and I just thought those kind of moments yeah. make something like uh, Chickamauga or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Into something that people can connect to, so that's what I would do. And I would teach—I would teach history that way, I teach science that way, I teach everything that way. I wouldn't reduce it to simply stories, but I would continue to connect the classes to
0: events—not—not not that young people can relate to, but that anybody can relate and to. And you know what I think the genius of that is, Bill. If you don't mind me jumping in on you here for a sec, is that uh, uh, we, if you want to talk about my genius, you can speak we, as long as you want. To. We have this idea <laughs> in our heads. The floor. And I think this is just a universal human thing that uh, we're the smartest generation ever and everyone that mm. came before us were idiots. And by telling these stories in this way, you're you're driving home the point that people have never really changed, uh, that human yeah, nature correct. is what it is. And this is how we connect to uh, to the past, that it wasn't a bunch of racist, bigot, slave-owning, whatchamacallit. They were real people.
1: And when you read the letter that Sullivan Bellew wrote to his wife uh a- on the eve of him going into battle about thinking, you know, look, if I don't come back, I want you to raise my son into full manhood and, and, and just the, Mm. just the poetry of it. And it's just such a beautiful letter. And then there's a pause. And then, uh, then it was like Sullivan blue was killed in the battle. I think it was first bull run or whatever it was. But when you've read that letter and you hear the, just the, just the sheer humanity of it. And then you find out this guy was killed in, 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 I I think it was first bull run. Mm. Then, then you realize that everybody else that was killed in the battle of first bull run was like this too that's right right that's the that's the the magic of it is you've got to humanize it we learn through stories the bible is nothing but stories those are those aren't instructions there's the parable of the of the prodigal son there's the parable of the good samaritan we learn through stories and and that's what I would do to get this right. uh, train back on the rails
0: um Scott, I think Bill's onto uh, something when he talks about this uh, practical class being a an escape from a, a lot of the wokeness that infests a, a lot of these classrooms a lot of these especially the the younger teachers who are as near as I can tell from what I read in the news uh, pretty much just pure Marxist and it got me to thinking I, teenagers tend to have very good b s detectors because well they're being raised by parents and being a parent, I, I know I've got to have my share of BS. Uh, and so, when I was writing about this on Monday for PJ Media, I, I took that uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote and I, I just I adjusted it a little bit to account for for some of these high school classes. We know that they are not teaching. They know that they know they are not teaching. They even know that we know they are not teaching. We also know that they know we know they are not teaching too. They, of course, know that we certainly know they know we know they are not teaching too as well. But they are still not teaching. Um, if you were to teach a practical class that you think would really get this this standing room only effect, uh, what what would it be, and how would you teach it? Well, I did uh, years ago
2: have an opportunity to go into a classroom. I forget uh, what um, you know mistake of uh, sensibility allowed me to into a classroom in front of a bunch of high schoolers. But I got a chance to uh, to teach a class on journalism, and um, just one session. And I, and I think that would be valuable in itself. And basically, my, it wasn't a class on how to be a journalist, it was a class on how to read the news or how to listen to the news. Uh, back then, we still had newspapers. Um, right. you know, And, and how, what kind of questions to ask when you are evaluating a news story. And, uh, and the kids really got into that. Um, but I think today, if I had to choose, I would probably land on teaching every student in every school a class on how to sell. And I don't mean a class on sales as a general category, I mean a specific tutorial class on how to sell, not on the evils of capitalism, not on uh, Thank you. tricks employed by nefarious actors, not on subliminal advertising and other you know mystical ideas like that, but literally how to convey your ideas or your products in a compelling way that makes other people wish to buy them. And the reason why I would do this is because I believe the entire country, nay, the entire world runs on this. Um, Nothing happens as they used to say in the sales training until somebody sells something. And unless you are able to sell your ideas, unless you are able to be persuasive, unless you are able to win over uh, people, to gain a hearing and to be able to convey ideas to them in a way that they find uh, warm and inviting and delicious, then you are never going to be able to move ahead in anything you wanna do in life. And so you don't have to be a salesman to benefit from the how to sell class. You have to be a human and there are so many other things that are involved in this, including uh, ideas of human psychology and human relationships, of economics, of the time value of money, of ethics and morality, of uh, of speech and of uh, judicious use of words and when to not use words. Um, all of that gets rolled into this idea of how to sell. And and frankly, I think that kids would like that. Whether you're just trying to sell a young woman on going to the dance with you, yep. or whether you're trying to sell your parents on letting you use the car, or whether you're trying to sell your the manager at the fast food joint on giving you a job or when you get, you know, later in life, if you're trying to sell an actual product or service, um, this will be used every day in almost everything you do. And we don't know how to do it. Um, As a general populace, when you meet salespeople, and, and by the way, I mean legitimate, honest, people full of integrity and real concern for the customer's needs and the benefits that accrue to them from acquiring your product or or adopting your ideas. When you meet those people, they're some of the best people you ever want to meet. I mean, some of the finest people I've ever met are engaged in the profession of selling and give the lie to all the myths about, you know, the slimy salespeople out there. There aren't nearly as many of those as one thinks, but the reason why people think there are so many of them is they don't understand sales at all. So they constantly are on their guard. They think they're about to be snaked and so they're constantly apprehensive about it. But if you really understood sales, you become very relaxed. Since I've become over the years a professional salesperson, when I go into a selling situation, it's relaxing for me. It's enjoyable. There's nothing I like better than a real professional who knows his product, knows his customers, listens and meets the needs of that customer. Uh, And I'll finish off with an example, the guy who should teach this, who's probably dead by now, but in Cape May, New Jersey, in the downtown area, there was a little shoe store, and my wife and I were uh, visiting briefly to Cape May. I was preaching at a church there, and we kind of turned it into a little vacation for a weekend, and we were walking in this charming little downtown area, and two things struck me. One, there was a statue of a guy in the middle of the town, and I asked somebody, who is that guy? And he said, that guy is the guy who convinced all the other merchants in the town to do these sidewalks this way and to put up this lighting and to create this atmosphere of this little downtown area. He's the guy who rallied the town around saving that downtown for its uniqueness, for the beauty of its retail wow. experience and the shopping and the restaurants and the entertainment and stuff like that. So, so that, I was like, every town has a guy like that and there should be a statue of him. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? And then I was walking along and I looked in the window of a store and for the first time in my life, I stopped in front of a shoe store and I said to my wife, honey, can we go in here for a minute? (laughs) That would not, if you know anything about me. Got to be careful where that road leads. Yeah, it's dangerous. Anyway, I go in there. The guy who owns the place has owned it for umpteen thousand years and he's in his seventies, I think. And he takes the shoes out, brings them out in my size, the ones that I saw in the window. And he starts to tell me the story of these Keens. They're called Keens, they're like sandals and they have like a little kind of sliding drawstring thing on them. And he describes to me uh, customers that he's had who've worn them. And one of them I remember um, actually was on a, a trip down the Amazon and wore these for like two years down and back and came back and was still wearing them when he got home. And and once you wear them for a couple of days, he said, you'll never want to take them off. They're the most comfortable shoes you could ever wear. And he just completely swept me up. Now that would have been horrible if all that had been BS. But as it turns out, Keens are the most comfortable shoes (laughs) that I've ever worn. And now I want to buy them. From that day, I have never been without a pair of Keens. I typically wear them at least five days a week, sometimes more, and. Um, I have been through, I think this is my, this may be my third pair because for a while I was literally walking for exercise in them. So the pavement, you know, I was like wearing them out, um, and they were getting kind of slick on the bottom, but I have bought three pairs of these. One, I had to send in for repairs. They repaired them and sent them back to me uh, because the little thing that you pull the heel up with had snapped. Oh. Um, they're incredible shoes, but how do you spell that? that Keens? K-E-E-N-S. Okay. So all of that to say that this 75-year-old guy changed my life for the better. Wow. Because he was willing to take the time that he had, you know, something that he had done thousands of times in his life, he yet again did it as if it was the first show opening night on Broadway and I was the king of England sitting in the front row and he wanted to make sure it was the best performance ever and his excellence and his honesty and his integrity and his fairness and and just his the way he told the story and connected with me made me feel good and got me a product that i have now used for what has this been 30 years i don't know it's been a long time <laughs> so teach them all how
1: to sell and they will never be hungry again
0: uh, you know steve I, can
1: i add one thing to that because because yeah. he's really uh, scott made a great point with that I, I I didn't hear the name Dale Carnegie or How to Win Friends and Influence People, but certainly it's it sounds like what what he's uh, the the general uh, approach uh, in our backstage show, which we have for members only. Uh, I think it was you, Scott, who had mentioned that. A recent studies show that loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 12 cigarettes a day and that the number of lonely people are increasing. If you teach people how to sell, one of the first things they can do is learn how to sell themselves. Yeah. Right. I mean, you you can learn how to sell yourself. You may have developed a bunch of bad habits that you didn't put there. One of them being maybe you just never listened to people. But yeah, that's if you learn how to sell, You can sell your own self right out of your own loneliness and out of your own poverty and out of your own everything. I think it's a marvelous idea.
0: It's brilliant. And, Scott, I need to know your secret here. Back, uh, this is many years ago, I was briefly between uh, radio jobs when I was living in Northern California. So I found myself selling electronics in a department store for a few months, and I was terrible at it. Um, I knew our stock. I knew our product. Up and down, left and right. Somebody comes in looking for an answering machine, a TV, a stereo. It didn't matter. Uh, I would give them their. I would talk to them. I would listen to them. I would figure out what it was they needed, and I would give them their three best options at at three different prices. And then they wouldn't buy anything. the the, the The only exception to that is if I had an older couple come in looking for a TV, I'd walk them over to the biggest Zenith and say, "You know, it's the last TV made in the United States." And they were wow, pulling dope. out their checkbooks right then and there. Uh, so, I, I, so I knew he, the stuff. Didn't here's know what I want to
2: buy this to you sell it. I've actually worked in three different departments in the store that I now work in and um, three radically different kinds of product lines. And I've often told customers when they ask me, you know, a lot of times customers will say, how long you been here? And I'll tell them how long I've been there, but that I've worked in different departments and I started off in computers and then I worked in living room furniture and now I work in area rugs. And, and um, they were like, wow, how did you like learn all the different stuff about all those different things? Cause we have a huge selection at the yeah. store. And, and I said, it's not about the products. It's never been about the products. That's not what I enjoy about the job. You know, what I enjoyed about working in the computer department is the technology, but really it was seeing somebody who was gonna be able to do something that they dreamed of doing. And this little tool would enable to, them to do that. What I loved about working in the furniture department and now in the rugs department is that typically those decisions are made as a couple for, mar- for married couples. Yeah and it can bring people together. I can't tell you how many times I almost felt like I was in a, in a, in a pastoral marriage counseling meeting because I I'll literally translate for the woman what the guy is awkwardly trying to say when he says, I don't care, pick whatever you want. And, I, and when he says that, I always oh. turn to the woman and say, he respects your judgment, he trusts you with this, he believes that you're better than him at this and that brings people together, and they, they find common ground, and, you know, and then they enjoy this thing, and their home together. Their home becomes more beautiful. And so if you focus whatever you're trying to sell, ideas, politics, products, it doesn't really matter. It's not about the ideas, products, or politics. It's about the people, and it's, I hate to do you know, Michael uh, Scott in the office, but uh, it's the people it is the people. <laughs> so it's, it's really listening and caring enough about those people to do the best you can for them to make their lives better. Awesome. Plus that
1: rug really ties the room together.
2: <laughs> Believe it or not, we have little signs.
1: <laughs> there are little signs on the furniture in
2: the on the second floor that say, the rug ties it all together. <laughs> Colonel Big Lebowski, for those of you who are I did not, not know with it. it was a movie reference until yes. somebody pointed it out you'll,
0: to me. You'll, I've got a brilliant idea for your for your furniture department. Just just one word that'll totally reshape the way they sell furniture from now on. Geranimals. <laughs> yes. Genius, yes. right? Just put the little matching animal tags it. on the thing. Yeah, okay. I'd take a lot of the guesswork out of for folks. Uh you know, I got I let this get totally off topic. That's okay. I can wrap this up really quickly. I, I wrote about this this personal finance class in New York on Monday for Pajamas Media, and I, I opened it up the comments to to my readers the same way I did with Bill and Scott. What what would what one class would you want to bring into the schools to, to get kids excited about learning? And uh, as I read through the comments this morning, they fell almost entirely into two broad categories, either critical thinking or practical real-world stuff that that people need. Critical thinking is is obvious. Practical real-world stuff is obvious, too. And I don't mean that in a bad way. What I mean is, if you teach kids to think critically and you teach them how to do things, uh, there's nothing they won't be able to do, and there's no amount of BS they won't be able to dismiss and just get rid of in their lives. And I think that's a a beautiful thing on, on both ends. But there was one comment that stood out to me because it, it didn't fall into either one of those categories. I'm gonna I'm gonna share this with you. I just I really enjoyed this. They said, dodgeball. Dodgeball. It teaches humility, resilience, fortitude. The lessons of dodgeball are endless. Less you think I love the game, I sucked at dodgeball. I could dodge, but I couldn't throw or catch. Because sometimes it's not about being good at stuff. It's about the lessons you'll learn doing something uncomfortable and difficult. And if I could just drill that into my 17-year-old's brain, I would have a much easier time. <laughs> and that's your right angle on that. Brought to you by the members of BillWhittle.com. Thanks so much for watching.